Let's pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As some of you know, I am a proponent of the practice called dwelling in the word. How many have heard of dwelling in the word? You better all have your hands up. How many have done dwelling in the word in a small group or whatever? Okay. Um, this is a practice that invites each person to listen to the biblical text as it's being read and pay attention to what captures your imagination. Specifically, um, what speaks to you, or for Facebook users, what do you like? Also, what questions do you have? What makes you call time out? What is he saying? <laughs> then we listen to each of what each of us heard or wondered about. It's a time of sharing and sometimes insights. The practice of dwelling is based on the conviction that God speaks to us, each of us, through biblical passages, whether we have a lot of biblical training or we do not. The Bible, you see, is not merely information. It is a conversation to which you have been invited, one that's been going on a long time. But it can be a difficult conversation to join with strange stories and commands. And both of our texts today, I think, qualify as strange. One of the challenges of dwelling in the Word, as we've discovered here at, at Mount Carmel, is that many people today, when they read the Bible, feel like they're reading something pretty inaccessible. Because these words were written 2,000 years ago in a culture radically different from our own. So when I say to you after reading a text, how does that speak to you? Or what do you hear? The answer is often, well, how am I supposed to know what this means? All I have are questions. You ever been there <laughs> when you look at some of these passages? I mean, me too, and I went to seminary. Today's text from Luke is an example of a head-scratcher like this. It may elicit far more Timeouts than likes. Timeouts and questions are a good thing, however. There's a, a saying that seminary professors would use with students, especially in preaching class. First addressed what a text meant, then address what it means. Did you ever get that one, Dave? What did it mean? What did it mean? What does it mean? Not the same question. Until you have some sense what verses meant in the original context, it's hard to know what the verses mean for us today. You see, the words in the Bible are not automatically speaking directly to you. They are, first of all, words that tell us about a conversation that God had with God's people in a very different time and place. And not everything carries over without reinterpretation. The main idea behind the verses is probably very relevant for today, but it will have to be reapplied, repackaged for a different culture. Make sense? So, 
Um, I'm going to spend a little time in my sermon this morning addressing what the context was for these words of Jesus in Luke and why, for instance, Jesus asked those he sent out to speak to no one on the road. That's a strange way to start a mission. Don't talk to people. That strike you as a little odd? After we ask, what did it mean? I'm going to ask, what does it mean for today? Put another way, are there themes or ideas here that still apply to us today, even though those ideas may be carried out in a very different way? And for that one, for that part, I'm going to have you take out your half sheet and jot some thoughts down as I go through a list. Okay, what did it mean? And then, what does it mean? Well, in the previous chapter of Luke, Luke 9, Jesus did a bold thing, and he shifted from himself alone doing the ministry, and then all of his disciples just following and watching what he did, to sending out his 12 disciples to heal people. Drive out demons. Proclaim the kingdom of God. Then in chapter 10, what was just read here today, he sends out 70 people. Some scholars say 72 people. Clearly, Jesus is beginning to pass on his mission to his followers in such a way that they are no longer simply following, but they are sharing in the mission. They are being sent. And like Sinead said in her uh, children's sermon, um, they, they are being invited and even sent to, to live the better way that Jesus taught us. And so Jesus has just moved from sending his inner circle, the church council, to sending all his followers out in mission. Does that make you a little nervous? I, I, if I was one of the 70, I would have been. These verses anticipate the forming of the church. Jesus is also teaching his disciples by doing what it means to live Jesus' way of life. Okay, so Jesus tells them the harvest is plentiful. And this is a metaphor that builds on earlier passages, like the parable of the sower, for instance. And here he's not telling his followers to go out and plant seeds. Uh, that's always a good thing to do, don't get me wrong. We're all to be sowers. But rather, Jesus is here assuming that God has already been loose in the world and at work in the world by the power of God's Holy Spirit, and God has been at work sowing seeds, cultivating, and now it is time to reap the harvest. I.e., what does that mean? Make a connection. Form a relationship or relationships with those who are ready to receive the word of God or in whom the spirit of God is already at work. In a world where people assume that God was not involved in human affairs, why would God do that? This is a rather bold idea that God was loose in the everyday world and that the everyday world needed what God had to offer. Maybe things that we might take for granted. The 70 were to go out as lambs among wolves and take no purse, no cloak, no sandals. Now there's a great inspirational pitch, huh? Why would Jesus send them out so unprepared 
and vulnerable. Well, we may not know for sure, but it appears to be an invitation to them to let go of any sense of control that they had and trust who? Trust God to provide, to provide someone out there who would offer hospitality to them. If comfort and security were your main objectives, this mission was not for you. Okay, how about greet no one on the road? <laughs> well, uh, why do you suppose that's there? Any guess? Why would that be? What's that? Safety. safety. What do you mean safety? They might be crooks. They might be, they might be crooks. Um, yeah, th th there could have been things we're not sure about. One, one scholar says, um, strangers who engage you in conversation in that culture oftentimes were, were beggars or homeless, and he didn't want uh, his, his followers to be interpreted as, as beggars and to, to receive sort of pity. Uh, maybe. Or what many suggest is it's about focus. Keep your head in the game. Single-mindedness, singleness of purpose. Don't get distracted. Maybe. Then go up to a house and say to the people there, peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in your peace, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. I think we've all had the experience of greeting someone and feeling that they received us. They were open to us. That makes subsequent conversation a little easier, right? Conversely, we've all had the experience of our peaceful goodwill sort of bouncing off someone and coming right back to you, right? Been there? Well, what do you do when that happens? Well, you're best off, find someone else to talk to, right? So too in our passage, if your peace returns to you, i.e., you are rejected, the clear implication is that you move on. But if your peace is received, there's a connection. You remain with those people. You got something then. Interesting, too, the concept of peace. Is it possible the peace being referred to here is not just my well-intended greeting, but something more? Perhaps the peace is the peace of God, the peace that is given to his followers, but also a peace that is to be found in others out there. It could be like a treasure hunt. Find the people with the peace. Jesus then instructs the 70 to eat what is set before them because the laborer deserves to be paid. This seems to assume that the guests will be sharing work together uh, perhaps assisting with whatever the host does to make a living. This was more common in that culture. Uh, traveling workers who joined in the business for a while. Cure the sick and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. This is a sure sign that God's power is with them. For they are given the power to cure the sick.
it also echoes exactly what Jesus' ministry was all about, namely, these three themes right here in a nutshell. Creating table fellowship, eating together with one another, tending to our neighbor's physical and earthly needs, whether it be uh, curing an ailment, um, feeding the hungry, seeking justice for that person, earthly needs. And then third, declaring that the kingdom of God has come near to you, that God is at work in the world, reconciling the world to God's self. These three encapsulate what the church did and does. Fellowship, love, proclamation of the good news. Okay, so now, that, that's a little, there's, that might have answered some of your questions. I'm sure you have more questions of that text. Doesn't answer all of them. Did that help in any way to, to, get, to get kind of a sense of maybe, maybe what it meant in that time? Yeah, you can nod, that's okay. Or you can be brutally honest and just go like this too. No, no didn't help at all. Um, okay, what is relevant in this story? Pull out your list. We're going to do um, a whirlwind kind of review of what what the takeaways might be here on what Luke 10 teaches. Which ones, and what I'd like you to do, if you can jot notes down or indicate which one is the most important, do you think, uh, from your point of view, which one is the hardest? Okay, number one, fertile soil. The story of Luke 10 affirms the world's need for God's mission. The harvest is plentiful. It may not seem like it as churches are, are dwindling, but that means that people out there, for all their doubts about organized religion, and there are many, are still looking for meaningful relationships, purpose in life and in their work, and a vibrant spirituality. That's just about everyone. How can we help them address those needs? Number two, all, not some. Sinead hit this one well. We've thought for a long time it was just cert certain people, a designated few, who were sent out in mission. Hence, missionaries. They're the ones who, who do mission. They're a rare breed, and we sit here, and we don't have to worry about mission. Uh, churches tend to think that way, and there are many. Uh, and when churches do think that way, uh, they have no future whatsoever. Mission is done by all of us. Where does God send you? Number three, taking it to the streets. Most of the time we think our primary task is to attract people out there to us here. And that, and that is true. Luke 10 asks us to consider something very new to us, that God is already at work in the neighborhood out there and that we can join him out there. If we only think God is here at church, we will have a truncated, insufficient experience of God. It also means you don't wait for the harvest to come to us. We go out to reap the harvest and bring the good news to our neighbor and sometimes find the good news that we need to hear out there. Almost like the neighborhood is church in a way. Number four, pray. Jesus says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out. This is a call to prayer. 
which, do you think that's still relevant today? I think so. And we're reminded prayer is not just for me and my own, but for the world. Number five, trust. Sent out as lambs with no purse, no bag, no sandals. As mentioned earlier, this is all about learning to trust in God's providence in an uncertain world. It's not about our own preparations or need for security. It also establishes that those going out will be dependent on someone else's hospitality, which means they, we are not in control, but must be able to receive. What gets in the way of you trusting in God, letting go of your control? Number six, focus. We are called to be focused. Many churches have no focus other than just try to do good things. As a result, our energy gets dissipated in every which direction. Clarity of purpose is not a bad thing. It gives you permission to say no to things, and that can be a real gift because you're supposed to do this thing as an individual, as a church. What is God leading you to focus on? How about let go? Number seven, people of peace. No matter how we do it, the first purpose is to find people of peace. That establishes the connection. It likely will not mean knocking on doors, although it might. It probably won't mean staying in your neighbor's house with them. It very well might mean working on something together with them. Who are those people for us with whom we can find fellowship and common cause? We already have a start with that, don't we? We have partners out there. Eight, fellowship, love, hope. The purpose of our mission, once peace is established, is find table fellowship, tend to physical earthly needs, declare the kingdom of God. How can we build on meal fellowship to love our neighbor and point to God's presence? And lastly, get back on the horse. Uh, often there's failure. That's assumed here. If so, you move on, learn from it, but know the kingdom has still drawn near. I hope you had something to jot down. I'd love to see what you jotted down. Drop it in the offering plate. May we all be students of Luke 10 and what it teaches. Amen.